and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent, and I want to welcome you to part two of Teal and I's interview with the great Craig Wasson. Hope you got a chance to check out our first episode with Craig. And if you haven't, just stop on over to StuffWe'veSeen.com and you can check it out. Uh, we cover a lot of really cool things about Craig's start in the entertainment industry. And in this next episode that you're just about to listen to, we are going to talk about some of the key films that Craig was in in the 80s, including Ghost Story, Body Double, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors, and there's some other great stories that Craig is going to share with us. So I really hope that you enjoy it. Uh, as always, if you like the podcast, make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to check out our show. And uh, let some people know if they are film fans and like to hear uh, discussions about the film going experience. And now we will take you right into Craig Wasson, part two. You know, I went in with this with an open mind. I'm like, I know, I know what your work's like in the movies I had seen. But I, you know, when you're going back into these films, my 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 concern was like, well, what if I start watching these and and Craig's not very good in them? <laughs> but, <laughs> that was my worry too. I mean, I'll jump ahead for a second is I'm watching and this is what I remember at the time and why I liked it a little bit more than just your average schlocky horror. Even in a movie, a low budget horror film like Nightmare on Elm Street 3, you take it not too serious. You take it seriously enough that you're like, I'm going to give a performance as if it's like a serious movie. And I like <laughs> that because you're good in that. Like, yes. you're, you're always enjoyable to watch. And it was fun. I forgot. I'm like, man, him and uh, John Saxon are digging up the bones of Freddy Krueger, <laughs> burying with the. So I was like, this is awesome. Like, you know, it was like, I mean, it's a hokey movie. I kind of forgot kind of how hokey some of this well, stuff but is. That was 80s oh, horror yeah. was kind of hokey. You know, that's just part of the genre, I think. But uh, so you know, so you get so. But we're going to go back now to 1981. Is that there's another horror movie? It's called Ghost Story. Right. Yeah. And this has some of the biggest guns of like. You know, Hollywood oh. in there, Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Hausman, <laughs> and Craig Wasson. Uh, no, also Patricia oh, wow. Neal. And it was the last feature film for all four of those main stars and the second to last film for Patricia Neal. Yeah. And it was also shot by the legendary Jack Cardiff uh, yeah. and an mm -hmm. early performance from Alice Krieg. It's like, I mean, that's just a hell of a cast. And I'm sure that anybody, like if they're getting the tap to work with all these people, you're like, yeah, just sign me in. Absolutely. And, and you know, to be with the four, these four, they're like Hollywood pillars, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I developed a friendship with all four of them. And uh, I mean, it was, I don't know if friendship's the right word, maybe a, Idol worship? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I, the first day before we started rehearsal, because we had a rehearsal there for a few days, we were in uh, Saratoga Springs at the Gideon Putnam Hotel. Beautiful old, you know, pre-Revolutionary War hotel. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, is that just on the main drag there, I think. Yeah, yes, it's, sir. It's amazing. Uh, downtown Saratoga Springs is beautiful. It's, only, it's like about an hour and a half drive from me, which where I live, hour and a half drive is like a 10-minute drive anywhere else. <laughs> right. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> you get those winding roads that go on forever. Yeah, so like um, we're, we're having a little uh, evening soiree and everybody's meeting each other. And I go over to John. I see John Houseman there and I go up and I say, 
it is such a privilege to work with you. And he said, it certainly is. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? I love it. And he was such a great guy. I mean, he told me stories. You guys don't have time to hear all the stories he told me. But do you realize that he was actually a hugely successful at the age of like 18, the most successful import export trader on earth. What? (laughs) I did not know this. His father was a huge import export trader in London. His mother was a French aristocrat. So that there you get the accent. You get London high class and French aristocrat. That's, that's what this is. (laughs) Right. Is that wild? And so, his father set him up in New York, and what he would do, he told me, he said, I would borrow millions of dollars, would buy the product, I'd ship it out, it would arrive, they would pay me with a <laughs> high profit. <laughs> now, it was 1929, I was sending out all the goods across the Atlantic and Pacific to various ports, and the crash happened. And in one day, I was ruined. He was ruined. He couldn't even get back into his house on Long Island. Wow. Wow. He ended up staying in a lower west side uh, Greenwich Village at a restaurant that was open 24 hours. And he was sitting there weeping into his arms about 1 or 2 a.m. And a waitress came up and said, are you all right? And he said, no, I'm not all right. I'm ruined. <laughs> she said, <laughs> And she said, well, do you have some place to go? And he said, no, I don't. She said, well, you can come sleep at my house if you have to. This woman was an out-of-work actress working as a waitress. And John Houseman told me, she's the only actor I ever liked. <laughs> <laughs> they, ended up being a, they ended up being an item, and he slept on her couch just, you know, just <laughs> – with no reason to live for like uh, months. Then she got a part in a touring theater, you know, some kind of production. And she told the producers that he was her husband, but they weren't married, but that's what she said. So the two of them went off on tour together. He still spent all his time in the hotel, sleeping all day and being depressed. But one day she convinced him to come to see a production that she was in because the producers were coming to, to this out-of-town location to watch it, see if they were keeping up with the original direction and everything and stand to the script. So they showed up, and and he came up with the idea. He said, I don't know, maybe maybe I could be a producer or something or somehow involved in the theater business. So they showed up. He gave them a card, and they went, okay, right. Yeah, the guy's husband wants to be a producer. All right, fine. So anyway, so they come back. The tour's over. He's back to sleeping on the couch. And one day a call comes in from these production people who say, listen, we're doing a production in Harlem. And uh, we wondered if you would uh, produce it for us. Now, the reason they did that is because they didn't want their name attached to the production in Harlem. He knew nothing about producing plays. And I forget the name of the, might have been Steamboat or some incredible musical that was a huge hit that basically d- dissolved the line between New York and, and up, you know. But anyway, in any case, he all of a sudden, his name is attached to a hit he had nothing to do with. <laughs> is that crazy? It sounds like my story. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> anyway, he's, although it's much more interesting, he then goes out 
Well, obviously, I got on the ball and went out to make myself a company of actors. <laughs> so I went all over town looking for theater. theater. I watched so much dreck, it made me sick. Finally, I saw a production of Romeo and Juliet, and Orson Welles was playing Tybalt. I thought, my God, I could build a theater company around that man. What a voice. So afterward, he went and knocked on Orson Welles' door because uh, he wanted to offer him a job in his theater company. He's like, <laughs> who is it? You know. Me, I want to make, I want to make, I want to make you a star. Get the hell out of here! He wouldn't let him in. Who you know? He thought some guy was fooling around. Finally, he finally, after several different times, he finally convinced Orson Welles, and that's where the Mercury Theater Company began. Fascinating! Wow, I did not. That's wow. What a great story. Is that great? So you are in the you're in uh, Ghost Story for the whole movie. So you're there for the entire show. And I play two parts. I know you get the pl- I- that's, <laughs> that's the best part. You know, so like the reason I went to see the movie was because it was playing when it finally left theaters in early uh, like January of '82. It was in the second runs, and yeah. my you know, we, there's a small town single house theater where my grandmother lived and where my mom grew up, and you know we lived up uh, not up the road in another town, and we would go to the movies with her once in a while if my grandmother wanted to see what was playing in the town theater and so she wanted to see this ghost story which was shocked was like she wants to see a horror movie grandma what well it features <laughs> douglas fairbanks jr and fred astaire yes. and these were all you know heroes of hers and so we were like okay you know i, I was like keeping my mouth shut. i was like oh i think they featured this in fangoria i want to see it <laughs> and of course within like seconds it. seconds yes you were flying out of the window naked <laughs> To your death as one of the characters. And I'm like, oh. one of my proudest moments. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I'm like, my grandma. I'm sorry, grandma. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. Not having seen this movie before, I don't know. I, I just, it wasn't, my grandmother didn't take me to see it. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> when you fell out the window and died, I was like, what's going on? He's not in this movie. He's just in the open. <laughs> I had forgotten, so I'm like, wait a minute, why, I'm all confused, and why is he wearing a mustache? And I forgot you got to play Brothers, and then, you know, because all that I had remembered from this movie is I remembered the end as to what happened to her character, which I actually thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I remembered yeah. that, and I remembered the actors, and then I just remembered that there was this very, uh, to me, at like 11 years old, it was this very graphic sex scene between... Uh, you and Al- Alice that that haunted me because I'm sitting yes. next to my grandmother and I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, first of all, I didn't know people had sex that way. <laughs> I thought it was just. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was I, just. I've like, never had sex like that before or since. <laughs> I thought it was like a missionary position under the covers. Like I was, like, you know, I think that my my it was like around the time where my sister first learned about what sex was, and yeah. I remember she saying to my mom, she's like. Wait a minute, does and because my aunt, uh, her sister, had two kids, and she's like, "Wait a minute, does that mean that Auntie Ruthie and David did it twice?" <laughs> like you know, that's kind of like the rationale you had as a kid. So I see this movie, and I was kind of like, "Oh my god, I don't know what was going to happen when I'm like older." But jeepers, there's all kinds of things that could happen, you know. Yeah. So and then I was, of course, then I was still a critic back then, as eleven. I was like, I don't know, this movie didn't deliver the scares that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was interesting to rewatch this movie now. Until you said you watched it, right? Oh yeah, I definitely. Oh yeah, I watched it. I I I, I didn't know much about it. I, I it sort of escaped my radar, and I really enjoyed it. I particularly. The part when I got really engaged in the movie was the extended flashback. That part's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. As soon as it went into that, I, I got really sucked into, into the movie. What they had done as young men, right? Well, no, actually, your flashback. Oh. Yeah, when you tell your ghost story, and we get into oh, the yes. story of how she came, and, and then it ties in the story with the brothers, that's when the movie really starts to kind of pick up. Exactly. Oh, good, yeah. good, You good. want to get into the Oyster Club or whatever, the Chowder Club that the these chowder guys club. are in? Yes, the Chowder Club. Yeah. yeah. First, you have to tell a ghost story. Yeah. But yeah, I was more engaged by, <laughs> I'm not just flattering you, I was more engaged by your character's story than the four old men. Thank you, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah, I thought that you had this real interesting fear and pathology. Again, you're doing that thing where you have several things going on on your face at the same time, but it was sort of your love and fear and like how your relationship with this woman is just really fascinating and interesting. An interesting thing happened that nobody could have planned. I had uh, had a girlfriend named Gail who I was crazy about, you know, and in fact, a lot of the emotional kind of memory that I was using within four friends was from the breakup of this gal, Gail, okay. you know, remembering her and yearning for her and loving her and all that. And Alice Krieg is Gail's body double. She is ex looks exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. Is that crazy? I'm telling you, it was spooky. And it was like a ghost story, excuse the expression. Yeah. I mean, I remember meeting her for the first time there at the Gideon Putnam Hotel. And I was stunned. I was, I was thunderstruck. And she is the nicest person in the world, Alice Krieg. Just yeah. a sweetheart. Wonderful actress. She's from South Africa. Did you guys know that? I did not, know. Yeah, I, I thought she was English, but she's from South Africa. So uh, anyway, I think that's part of why my relationship with her was uh, uh, fraught. Right, <laughs> right. Well, it, I mean, it really is. Like, yeah, your approach to that is, uh, it, it's just really interesting to watch. It's compelling to watch your, your approach to that, to her, to that love story, to the end of that love story. I love that scene when you call your brother when you're in the bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask Trying you about that. Is, is he supposed to be your, your twin? I, don't, I haven't read the book in years, and so it was a little unclear. He's supposed to be my twin. Okay. Yeah, he's like the successful business guy, and I'm like the bum, you know, kind right. of quote-unquote bum kind of guy. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting what you said, James, because I agreed with you. When the movie was being made, I thought, this is not scary. It's not scary enough, you know, because yeah. what people want is to be scared. But then in retrospect, Teal, you understood what the director wanted. Because I remember uh, John Irvin saying, no, this is not going to be your typical, you know, horror poop. This is yeah. going to be a classic old style ghost story, you yeah. know, where you tell that kind of thing. So in a way, both things were working at once. If you know, and like, for instance, mm -hmm. there was a scene where. The two kind of ghoulish, demonic guys, the tall guy and the short guy, come down in an elevator, and I'm standing there. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? Now, what the director told me was that they're going to have, they're going to do special effects, and the green beam of light is going to come out of their eyes and hit me, and I'm going to be surrounded by this green thing, you know? So... When he told me to respond to that, I'm like, no. Yeah. Well, I see the movie. There is no green beam of light. There's nothing. You know. Look, it. I, I'll be honest. I'm re reassessing as I watch this movie again. And to me, the number one problem with the film was the the, the score. They, they, the score did not fit what was going on in the movie. 
Oh, interesting. That didn't even occur so to true. me. true. There were times they were trying to do jump scares for no reason. It's just like, you know, yeah. I, probably the studio was like, let's dial up the horror, but this is what we shot. Well, find a way to dial it up. <laughs> like- You're definitely right. There was that <laughs> conflict going on. And the conflict that you guys have in terms of perceiving the film is what happened with the directors, the actors, and the editors and the distributors, you know, Universal Pictures. They, You're absolutely right. They wanted to change it and make it a horror picture but it had already been shot as a classic old sort of old yeah. style ghost story well i guess that uh, dick smith right the the legend makeup guy that and maybe you can verify this i don't know is that he developed a, a like an approach where most of the time where you see alice's ghost instead of that horror scary ghoulish makeup that they would did uh, mm. that that she would be sort of this faceless kind of character and i think one mm. shot that i thought was actually very scary kind of shows that where she's like under a veil and you just can't really see a face it's really creepy yeah. and then yeah. they scrapped that and said no we're gonna have to go with like the the scary you know rotted corpse look and yeah. right. and i think that it's, yeah. the, it's the mysterious kind of ghostly images would have been better and you know, maybe utilizing Jack Cardiff. I mean, he shot The Innocents, yeah. I think. And that was like exactly. one of the classic ghost stories. And they didn't give him enough chance to maybe bring in that atmosphere. I totally agree with you. I, I think that if they just let John Irvin do what he wanted to do, yeah. rather than maybe what they tried to impose on him, that, that it, 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 it would have been out of the category of horror pictures, but it would have been in some sort of uh, more classic ghost storytelling. Because it is, it is creepy and... Uh, yeah. You know, there's there, there's parts of it, but, but like scares is kind of the wrong word, but it's unsettling at times. Yeah. And, you know, and like it was it, it based on the idea of uh, the son, the, the sins of the fathers are visited yes. upon the son, you know. And I, I guess as a kid, right, I thought it was going to be filled with ghost stories. Like, you know, it was misleading. I was like, wait, but this is a ghost story movie. that doesn't really have any ghost. Story. It's like a central ghost story. And then you go and tell one. But I wanted tons and tons of ghost stories because that's <laughs> how I was. I was of course. Right. You know, because you were 11. Because yes. I was 11. Right. That's what I want. <laughs> that's what they made a rated R movie for me. <laughs> that's kind of still what I want, to tell you the truth. <laughs> oh, so, you know, again, you know, you're, you're being very gracious with, with, with your time. And now I'm like, boy, how do, how do we get Craig back on again? for another one to kind of cover things we can't cover but uh, you know i want to get because we're getting very now close to a couple years later uh i think i think it's the film that you're probably most known for and it's certainly the one that made the biggest impact on me as a kid where me too. Like, where i suddenly that i rem- i was like oh that's the guy from ghost story but afterwards i'm like oh that's craig wasson and that Aww. is brian de palma's body double 1984 and i'm curious how do you get the role the lead role of jake scully yeah, I uh, I'm in New York. I've been in New York for a, a few years there, and um, I'm doing little theater stuff. And I'm feeling pretty much like, geez, you know, I can't uh, I can't get arrested. I can't get a job. I uh, I did a little uh, summer stock thing out in Ohio at Gambier College, you know, and uh, it was a really nice play and everything. But uh, it was an original called Stem of a Briar, and I did that Innocence Abroad that mm-hmm. uh, that you mentioned. And that was wonderful. That was like taking the grand tour, going to Europe, you know, and getting paid, staying all the nice places, working with Brooke Adams. I love Brooke Adams. Anyway, I'm in New York, and uh, I'm about to do a play in New York off-Broadway. And I've just been cast, and I get a call from my agent, Scott Harris. And he says, they want to see you for a movie that Brian De Palma's doing. So I'm like, wow. Well, I I didn't even ask why. I mean, I just, <laughs> like, I'm like, fine. okay, 
I had to tell the people I was going to do the play in New York. I said, I, I you know, I've, I've got a chance to do a picture. I got to go audition. I, I know it's not an offer, but I've got to go. You know, they said, well, but we're opening, you know, in a couple of weeks. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I got to go. So anyway, I went and uh, Columbia Pictures wanted the guy, um, the guy who did the, uh, uh, the Dr. Pepper commercials and uh, David Naughton. No, well, maybe that maybe that's not the, the guy, guy from American Werewolf in London. Yes, yeah, that's yes. David, David Naughton. Is that David Naughton? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I thought. Oh, I thought it was Griffin Dunn. Oh, oh, that guy, his friend. Oh, I'm yeah, going the lead. Yeah. The guy that did the Dr. Pepper was David Naughton. Griffin Dunn was his pal, the the smart Alec. Okay. Okay. Why I know these things, I shouldn't know them, but I do. Well, I, <laughs> Sorry. I, I apologize to Griffin Dunn. I, he's a nice guy, too. Yeah. But anyway, uh, and he was with Brooke Adams. Is that a wild weird world oh, wow. we're in? You know. Anyhow, uh, so I come out there, and I I, uh, I read the script. I thought, oh, this is great. This is the everyman guy again, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and it's interesting because I did the audition, and, and uh, Brian liked me thank god and, and and brian is brilliant and he's fantastic and then you know what he said he found out after we started uh, started rehearsing and all that he found out that i did music and he said i want you to write the themes write a theme song for the movie i said oh that'd be great and he said make it sound sort of like uh every you know i'll be watching you every step you take you know what right. i mean right. by sting so i wrote a song called what you do i do and uh, it's it's got that whole thing. And he was going to use it in the movie, but Sony Pictures had a deal with uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which actually is a fantastic song. <laughs> right, you know? and it's right, a great right, sequence, right. too. So, But anyway, that was another thing. But, uh, oh, God, I loved working with Brian De Palma. He is such a great guy. There's another guy who's just, he's a he's a poet, like Penn. You know, he was speaking yeah. in terms of extended metaphors through the whole thing, which I loved. Oh, he was good. We, we rehearsed like we were rehearsing a play. You know how they tape out the the uh, furniture and stuff on the floor right. when you're rehearsing a play. Yeah. We had an open space like that, and we rehearsed for about a week or two. And then we shot, and he very rarely gave direction because he says, hey, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't think you could act. Right, right. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's like, a, I mean, that's like people like Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood expects that if he's hired you, that you're already going to know what to do. That he isn't, you know, he's like. Yeah, it was very nice. It's wonderful. It gives you a lot of freedom to find the character and add shades to it yeah you really feel free now he wants you to stay to the script which of course i i'm totally with that you know it's, yeah, it's yeah. a work of art you stick with the script but he he'd let you do uh, you know whatever you thought the character would do which was very nice this isn't another one of your performances where i feel like it's got you're an everyman but there's something a little creepy going on too like the moment when you look through the telescope yeah. And there's there's like this uh, sort of pent up sexuality there. We have to believe that, you know, that you're a bit of a voyeur. Right. And that's exactly. the whole thing. It's Absolutely. not going to work if you're not a guy who's going to go to the telescope. <laughs> right. Right. And, and my my personal opinion is that every man is a bit of a creep. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> not that not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, we're all we all have our problem. You know, like and like you said, this was. Really, uh, De Palma's salute to Hitchcock, obviously. Yeah. You get Tippi Hedren's daughter in Melody. Exactly. Yep. He told me, he said, oh, 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 I don't want you to, to do Jimmy Stewart, but I want you to be Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> well, that's why, you know, I always yeah. thought he was, Jimmy Stewart is that sort of unassuming guy. Yeah. He's likable, 
But like when we think of Vertigo, there's the probably one of the darkest portrayals that Stewart ever did. Right. There's some pathology to the character that's not just the everyman. There's some there's more complicated psychological stuff going on under the surface. That's for sure. For sure. I also like the scene where here you are, you, you, you just told us about your journey in Hollywood and it's filled with probably a lot of uh, auditions, disappointments <laughs> and stuff. And here, as you know, there's that scene where Greg Henry first encounters you at the at acting, the at the acting uh, school there, you, you know, you're doing yeah. that performance. And I didn't know how much does that remind you of things that you had to go through um, as an actor? Well, to tell you the truth, I never really, uh, I never really had any, you know, real heartbreaking, crazy kind of psychotic or neurotic situations in, in acting class. I always thought acting class was fun. And in fact, the class that I took, Michael Shirtliff was a casting director in New York, but he also had a how to audition class in New York. Oh. And I thought that was fantastic. And I used to go to that and he invited me to go to it, uh, you know, just come to do it for free. His whole thing was just get up and do it. You know what I mean? Don't don't overthink it. Don't right. get into all this sort of baloney and imagining yourself to be an ice cream cone or something. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I really loved that. I loved that. So I never really had any of those kind of weird acting class experiences. Now the film, right? I, I'm so you know this must be tough. You you shoot these films, but you're an actor. You don't get to you're not really involved in the post production process. And so I guess you just wait and you just hope that it comes out and is successful, right? Well said, James. Well said. <laughs> and so here's this is a very interesting history. It comes out on October 26th, 1984, right? And, you know, Brian De Palma, still big name, but you don't know, is it going to be a hit, whatever? Well, on that same weekend, October 26th, 1984, another very tiny little movie comes out, The Terminator. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. You nailed it. You <laughs> and, nailed it. And oh. this movie, it sucked all the oxygen out of everything around it because critics were, for the first time, they're like, this Schwarzenegger guy, this is something about him. Because, I mean, he was like, you know, right. he's Conan, but critics weren't oh. taking him as an actor seriously. And they thought, wow, this is a really interesting performance. This isn't your typical sci-fi action film. And suddenly right. there's no room to talk about body double if you're not just like, oh, it's De Palma doing his Hitchcock thing again. But with lots right. of sex and violence. <laughs> totally true. Well, there's another element to that, too, is that, you know, every once in a while, somebody will uh, be the target of a particular movement at a certain moment in time. Yes. Yes. And De Palma, there were a group of people who decided that Palma was, quote unquote, too violent. Right. Oh. Now, Terminator, I don't know how many people get killed in Terminator, but I think it's in the thousands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but the, it's not mixed with sex. Right, right. And so if you if you watch that scene with the drill and all, yeah. you never see the drill and the female in the same shot no. at the same right. time. All the violence is in your own brain. Exactly. You visualize what that drill is doing. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah. And that's the whole Hitchcock thing. But that, because people's brains are, you know, were manipulated by that brilliant film technique. Uh, that Hitchcock did and De Palma was uh, saluting. Yeah. The film got labeled and it got an X rating. That's oh, right. That's yeah, he was one of the many De Palma times where he had to cut, cut, cut to satisfy yeah. the ratings board. And now in retrospect, I mean, I don't know, it seems silly to me, but that's just. It, it's Well, it's tame by today's standards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But he, he was the poster boy, uh, you know, to be attacked that week. 
Wow. Okay. But but the movie has, I mean, I don't know. I've watched it repeatedly over the years. And I think, it, it, I don't know. I think it's remembered. I think people still watch it, don't they? Or is that I, just I, me? I, I do. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. How about Pino Donaggio? Yeah, that music is great. And it's funny. It's a little different than the kind of music that he was no- normally known for in his De Palma mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of was like, you know, he kind of was inspired by the 80s. And I, I think I said in our episode that we talked about, was he had a very tangible Tangerine dream type quality yeah. to it. That was Tangerine very dream. Popular yeah. in the eighties. Um, but uh yeah, I mean that that's that to me again, I feel like wow, you're you're always on the end of bad luck is that you, you know, you you're you're great in the movie, the movie's good, and then it doesn't perform and, and then the Terminator comes out. Yeah. I mean I feel like yeah. that's probably Hollywood goes, you know, they're just numbers and they probably start putting you in a bucket and says, Well, yeah, he's not gonna open the movie. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh uh, I, I assume that's what they said. I don't know what they said, but they might have just said, how about that Schwarzenegger? Right. And, right, the, and exactly. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I mean, he was obviously, you're right. He created a whole new way of having an action movie with a guy who's the hero who also has a great sense of humor. You know what I yes. mean? I got to admit, I mean, that's a great whole new way to do it. You did a lot of stuff. I know a lot of the things from your the 80s. The 90s, you worked steadily, but mm-hmm. not probably a lot of memorable things going on as far as the movies there. And then, you know, you didn't do a lot and you made a, a – you show up in 2006 in Aquila and the Bee, uh, which is written and directed by this guy, Doug Atchison or Atchison. And you'd, you'd worked with him in 99 on a film called The Pornographer. That's right. But then after 2006, the last 14 years, it, it looks, at least if you look at IMDb, that, hey, maybe you said, I'm, I'm done with Hollywood and I'm going somewhere else. Well, it was kind of a combination of things. I'd, uh, it was, there was this girl. <laughs> it's, always, it's always about a guitar and a girl. <laughs> okay. This, I'm already all ears on this story. This, I love great, you, Teal. I love great you. Great opening line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah. I don't know how – is it okay to go into – I guess it really depends. Uh, but uh, I met a gal on Body Double. Okay. So there, there you have the time frame. I met a gal on Body Double. And uh, – we were just friends to start. She wanted to ride back to New York after, because uh, she was from New York, actually out on the Hamptons. And uh, uh, I was driving back and forth. I had come from New York, remember? I was going to yeah. do that play mm-hmm. to come to Dubai, though. So I had to go back. I wanted to go back there. And uh, I said, I'll give you a ride, you know. So we rode across country together. And she was very intelligent, a, you know, Sarah Lawrence grad and uh, brilliant, you know, English major, knew mm-hmm. everything. She was an Audubon. Uh, she knew every bird. In fact, she used to get upset with me if I didn't know the birds, genus, and species, and all that, and the Latin. And I'm like, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> give me a break. It's a bird. But eventually, you know, I fell in love with birding because she loved it, and I loved her, and blah, blah, blah. So we were together, and I really kind of, um, she became my main kind of priority, you know, and I would. Right. We traveled to every state. Every one of the 48 lower states and into Canada, up into the Yukon, all the way to Alaska. Uh, we flew around together, but we drove mainly everywhere. And she, she'd been a librarian. And uh, this is sort of pre-everybody online. Right, right. So she would research before we would take a drive. I'd drive from L.A. all the way back to New York to pick her up. And then we'd go somewhere, you know, let's let's hit every barbecue spot on the southeast. You know, oh, fantastic. Isn't that neat? Oh, we had so much fun. And um, 
So wherever I'd get a call from my agent, I'd park the car or I'd take her home and I'd fly back from New York or she'd continue on without me or I'd bring her back to LA with me and uh, I'd do the picture or I'd do the guest shot or whatever and then I'd leave and go off again. So I wasn't in town auditioning anymore. I was with her and happy as happy as a clam, you know. Yeah. And uh, and my agent, God bless him, was still calling me. But, you know, after a while, <laughs> the agent is like, where is this guy? Right. So um, <laughs> he's where he's in the Yukon at Dawson City. What is this? Where is that? So yeah, so my uh, my career petered out, but my heart, uh, you know, grew and uh, and all that, and I uh, had a wonderful time. I wouldn't trade it for anything, really. Sounds wonderful. Well, so now you live in Northern California, which is, and you live in a gorgeous area. Like it's just paradise. It seems like uh, on the coast. It is. It's heavenly. Now, I do, this is not my permanent residence. I come down here for the winter. Ah. My permanent residence is up in Idaho. And the reason I'm not in Idaho is because it's winter. Right. right. <laughs> hey. My town up in Idaho is a mile high. It's a ski resort. And uh, it's covered in snow. And it's like, I think this morning, the temperature was five degrees. So, no, thank yeah, you. Okay. So, yeah. And if you don't, <laughs> if you don't ski, there's no exactly. reason to be there. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, people who ski love it, but I've never skied in my life. My brother was a champ. Well, he still is, but he doesn't do it much anymore. But he was a champion skier, did all the hot dog tricks and everything oh, wow. and actually had sponsors. So I, I took up the guitar. The question is, if duty called, if you were tapped on the shoulder, <laughs> could, could you just like uh, Al Pacino and Godfather 3, just when you <laughs> thought they were out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> Like, it's hey. like say Tarantino, he, he he makes his final tenth movie, and then he suddenly says, "Okay, listen, Craig, I I want you oh, in my movie. Like, oh. like, okay, can like, I don't care, man. You gotta come in, dude. You gotta come on, be in my movie. I love that. That's fantastic. Would you be like, okay, I gotta do it? Are you kidding? Of course. Okay. Yeah. That's the, that's yeah. the big, that was the million dollar question. I wanted to know. It's like, you know, Craig's out there, man. Oh, bless you, brother. You know, it's so funny. I was like, I you didn't come in until like the last 15 minutes of Aquila and the Bee, but mm. I, I had never seen the film and I watched it and- you know, again, it's like I could fast forward to find out what part you're in, but instead I got sucked in. I was really enjoyed that movie. <laughs> it is a good movie. And it's weird because it reunites you with an actor that's in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, Lawrence Fishburne. That's right. And that <laughs> yeah. was I think that was his think that was his first job as a, in a movie. And I remember no, him. No, 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 no. No. He was on a he was on an army boat. Going down the uh, going down oh, the. Oh, of course. No, he oh, was in apocalypse oh, now. God, he was in apocalypse sorry. now when he was like what a fourteen. Mistake on he my was part. Under age. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I remember meeting him on a Nightmare on Elm Street, and he's he's an orderly pushing the gurney down the That's down right. the hallway. Sweet kid, just as skinny as a rail, and uh, a sweetheart. Isn't that funny? Boy, the world is weird. How did I, how I got the idea that that was his first? He just seemed so young. I, I just yeah. yeah. I don't know how I forgot that he was in Apocalypse Now. I mean, he's just a kid there. And again, yeah. it's funny when actors, when you go back after they, after they kind of hit the conscious of like, you know, they've, they've made it. Then you're like, oh my goodness, they were in that performance. They're in that performance. So, you know, I didn't know, yeah. for instance, that Lawrence Fishburne, he, you know, he was in other Coppola movies. He was in the Cotton Club. and. Oh. He just re-released a new version that he did of the Cotton Club where he re-edited it. And so Lawrence Fishburne has a bigger role in that new oh, version. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, actually you don't realize like, oh, 
you know, connecting the dots. That person was in this movie. That person was in that movie. You know, well, so that's what I love about what you guys do. You know, I really admire what you guys do because you you really sort of take somebody's oeuvre. Is that the right yeah, word? Yeah, very good. <laughs> And I apologize for using that word because I really don't uh, speak French at all. But anyway, <laughs> but you take that and then you you make it available. Like you said, you cut deep and you make it available so that people see a larger view of the artist and the movies themselves. You know, which I love. Tie them all together. You make it more interesting. Well, I think what I'm going to do, if again, I'm not, I'm not a technical wizard, but you know, we have a website that's connected to our show and we always post our episodes up there. Um, and we don't do a ton of like other things on there, but I think when I create the post for, for this show, I may, I think I can link the YouTube uh, to the movies that you did that are on YouTube so that people could check out uh, Night at Arrears and also okay. uh, the bum rap, which I don't think we'd have time to talk about, but what's interesting about that mm-hmm. movie is that co-star in that is an actress named Blanche Baker who was yeah. Carol Baker's daughter and yeah. she was the older sister in 16 Candles which a lot of kids our age would would remember gotcha she's another great gal great actress great gal that gives you the opportunity to do a lot of impressions that yeah, it does. yes yeah because <laughs> you're a struggling actor and you're in your cab and you're doing like all these little monologues with different actors and yeah uh, i was thinking about that when you were doing your your spot on george c scott and stuff i was like yeah that's something that your character in that movie would do martin sheen taught me how to imitate george because marty came in to replace harvey Keitel to do uh, happy and death of a salesman oh, and okay. as happy he wanted to kind of sound like George, who was playing his dad, you know, so he said, George underlines words in a sentence. So like Marty had a line, you don't raise a guy to a responsible position who whistles in the elevator. He says the way George would do that would underline and go, you don't raise a guy <laughs> to a responsible position who whistles in the goddamn elevator. <laughs> And each time he'd take his finger and underline the word that he, you know, and I thought, right. oh, yeah, I got it. Okay. Okay, I have one random question I'm going to throw out there. I, I just I wanted to go back to Dream Warriors because as a teenager, I had a huge crush on Heather Langenkamp. Oh, yeah. And she just seemed, yeah, I don't know. I just, it was, anything you wanted to say about her or anything, I just am curious. Heather was maybe one of the, the least pretentious type actress type people I ever worked with. She's just the sweetest person. She's just exactly how she comes off when she's doing the character. Yeah. She's just a nice girl. Now, I haven't seen her for years, obviously, you know, I, I, I don't yeah. know. We didn't stay in touch after the movie, but she she was just a really nice person. And when the camera rolled, she was just that really nice person, just exactly who she is. One of the interesting things, re-watching it, you know, I hadn't seen her in anything in years. And watching it, I was like, you know, she's kind of got a kind of a little bit of an accent there. What's that? I didn't realize as then I went and did a little research is that she's from Oklahoma. And again, we're, we're tying in Coppola again. She got a role when they strolled into town to do The Outsiders. And that's how she got her start. Uh No kidding. Yeah. And then on that movie, you worked alongside, who's still alive, uh, she's 96, you worked alongside Priscilla Pointer, who's Amy Irving's mom, who also played her mom and Carrie. I know, I know. And I remember (laughs) after the fact, learning about this, that's how stupid I was. You know, I'm like, Oh, Amy Irving and Steven Spielberg, and they were all right there. And you were like, uh, you know, 
in your trailer somewhere learning your lines. <laughs> I guess I missed my opportunity to get to know them better. All the opportunities that you got because of guitar, you should have had that with you. And who I knows? should have had the guitar on set every day. Every day, yeah. You you could have been chasing, been chased by dinosaurs. You never know. You never know. It could have happened. Were you actually playing the clarinet in uh, Four Friends? Yeah, yeah. I had played trumpet in uh, high school and junior high, and then you know when it, the character showed up. So I learned how to play the clarinet. It's not that hard, really. Right. So, uh, yeah, I played the clarinet in that. It's like playing, you know, remember those little recorders you played when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grade school. Yeah. It's like that. You know, as you lift your fingers, the, the, the pitch goes up. You know, it's just, you know, it's funny because it's not a movie that I thought was very good. I'll be honest. I like to be honest on the show. But sure. I, but but because of all the actors and everything involved, and I, when I talked to you offline, I, th I think you said you had stories, but I'm kind of fascinated about The Men's Club, uh, oh, yeah. which oh, came yeah. out in 86 because uh, it's directed by Peter Medak. And that's, right. that's, he's a fascinating story. But there's like this tidbit that is kind of interesting that I learned is that th it was shot by this guy, John Fleckenstein. And the interesting thing about him was that he started out in bands. He played bass under the name John Fleck for the Standells and the no. early <laughs> incantations of love in the 60s. And I, I was like, that's already uh, fascinating. <laughs> the movie. Wow. That's a, how did I not know that? Well, how would you know? See, I mean, that's, you know, these, I mean, that's insane. And then and then the movie's got like, you're, you're, you're a, a, in, really an ensemble in this movie, but like yeah. you yes. got Roy Scheider, Harvey Keitel, Frank Langella, David Dukes, not the not the Ku Klux Klan David Dukes, but no. uh, the, the, the <laughs> de departed actor. Uh, and then a guy I always loved, he's a like really interesting character actor, was Richard Jordan. Yeah, I love him. And then you have Treat Williams, you have mm -hmm. Stockard Channing, uh, dearly departed Gwen Wells, who I always think is a very fascinating character actress, yeah. and then Jennifer Jason Lee and Anne Wedgworth. I mean, that's like, yeah. that is like chocked with so many actors. It's insane. It was amazing. And now, uh, this is the story that I wanted to tell you. I don't know if you guys have time for it or not. I, we do. We, 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 we're, we're making time. Okay. <laughs> time I has been it. made. <laughs> okay. The Men's Club. Like you said, it was a little disappointing, and it was very disappointing to me when I saw it. And, and here's what happened. The whole beginning was cut out. Oh. It was cut. And wow. so nothing makes sense in what you see. But here, let me tell you what the beginning of the picture was. There was a guy who was a lawyer, yeah. a really great guy who happened to be gay. And he had all these clients who happened to be straight. He noticed that all these straight guys had relationships with wives who had, the wives all had lots of book clubs and all this other stuff going on, but the guys had nothing but their work. And they didn't, none right. of these guys knew each other. They just yeah. happened to be con connected to him because he was their lawyer. And he noticed this and he thought, you know what? You guys ought to have a men's club where you guys could get together and meet and talk and, you know, get to know each other the way the women do. All the guys are like, this guy wants a bunch of guys to get together. You know, we know you're gay. We like you. You're a friend, but I don't want to be in your men's club. So they cut out that character. So they cut out that whole setup. That's crazy. Wow. I know. <laughs> so that, but that, see, that explains once the guys get together, why they're acting so weird. They're all trying to out macho each other. Well, that's because right. I was watching this movie and I'm like, wow, I didn't know that America was calling for middle-aged white man's trouble story <laughs> and I exactly. said, that, but like it doesn't and it, it was like you didn't understand why they're getting together that's like the whole setup and the, and the last part that was cut out the only reason they were getting together was in honor of this 
lawyer that they knew and all respected and liked who died of a heart attack. And then after he died of a heart attack, they thought, oh, God, you know, I can't believe I didn't want to go to that men's club. I guess I'll go and just let him know how much I appreciated that guy, you know. And so that was all shot. Yeah, that was all that was all shot. And it was hilarious. That's what makes the rest of the movie work. Wow. Without that setup, nothing makes sense. I later I asked, you know, what? What happened? How? What the? (laughs) Well, Roy Scheider's wife was the editor, and she thought it was offensive, that first part about the gay guy and all. Yeah, she thought that was offensive. It sets up a fantastic comedy. Right. Otherwise, it's just stupidity. Yeah, because it wasn't funny. (laughs) No, there's nothing funny (laughs) about it. Why are these guys acting like a-holes, you know? Right. That's unfortunate. It comes off, I'm like, these guys are a bunch of dicks. (laughs) Right, but now you know why. And another thing that troubled me But your character, though, ironically, was the one guy that really wasn't a dick. Right, and and notice how every (laughs) single guy had a story about women. Every single guy, except my character. Well, I had a story, and she cut that out. Oh, man. And it was a great story. I'm like, you know, my story was- I, I've never really cheated on uh, on my wife, you know, although right. I do. Right. He says, I, one time it almost happened. I was with this gal and, you know, she was very forward and uh, so forth. And so eventually she asked for a ride home because her car, you know, I had to drop her off because her car was in repair. So I was taking her home. And, I mean, you know, she was really coming on to me in the car. And we get to the front door and I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do something. You know, because she's already asked me to come in and she's got me excited and everything. The door opens and there's her husband. Her husband has a head like a broomstick. (laughs) He's like deformed. It's horrible, you know. And I I felt so bad. I couldn't. I had to turn around. I left. But but anyway, it went on longer than that. It was more interesting than that. And they shot it and it was good. But they cut it out because they thought that was offensive. Wow. So that wow. so, so there's a because it's based on a book, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, there had to have been something about the book that was popular, which is why they made this film. And I remember that I was working as an usher at this uh, multiplex back then. I was like, you know, I was like 16 years old, and it Perfect. did show up for like a week or two, and <laughs> and it was like the poster, you know, like we has this just yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee looking sexy, and yeah, and, and, and I'm like, what is this movie about? And then it, it just got bad reviews, and it like just appeared for a couple of weeks and that's all i ever remembered from the men's club until watching it just recently I, yeah. it was a curio for me and and i just felt like boy it just something's not connecting right in this movie now you know the rest of the story wow. now you know the rest of the story <laughs> paul harvey <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was working at a video store in 1987 when this came out on vhs and i watched it the week it came out i was pretty excited because of the cast um, yeah um, and I, w- I was disappointed. It was sad because the producer, Howard Gottfried, had produced Body Double. And, you know, oh. so uh, I was excited to be in it. He offered it to me. And uh, uh, and I think it would have been uh, I think it would have been a success if that setup had been there. Because right. then everything after that makes sense. That's really interesting. Guys wow. sort of spun out of control, proving that they were because they assumed everybody else there was gay. Right, right, right. So each guy is trying to prove to the other guy that he's straight. See, and it doesn't make any sense without, (laughs) you know. Can you imagine us throwing, you know, a bunch of guys throwing knives at a kitchen door? (laughs) What the hell's going on? Well, that's like my my, my favorite story about things that get edited out and you don't know is that 
uh, I just recently rewatched the the movie Heat and with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And my wife was watching it with me and, and my oldest uh, was watching it for the first time. And, you know, my wife was noted that there's a very amped up Al Pacino performance in the movie. It's sometimes <laughs> comical. And, and afterwards, I had to tell her there's a story that there's a rationale for why he is so amped up but they cut it in the editing room is that his character because of all of the intensity of his job he had developed a coke problem and he was battling oh that and they God. cut it out of the movie because the movie's like three hours long so, <laughs> right. they, and so they, now you just have coked up al pacino but with no coke. yeah so that's why <laughs> he's crazy in the movie <laughs> you know? i'm crazy yeah <laughs> and so that's that's like a rational he's like he was you know developed this extra amped al pacino performance on top of what he would already bring to the movie but right. they cut things out, and that's where when you get a movie, and if it all works, nobody cares about what's cut out, right? But if something doesn't exactly. work, that's when they're like, what happened here? And it's usually like, well, things happened in post-production. Right. And then yeah. those foundational bits of information. And this is more than a bit. This is a no, whole this setup. Is the whole, you know? the whole it's the whole setup. point. It's the whole point of the movie. <laughs> wow. Now I need a new director's cut. I don't know if it would be good or not, but I'd like to see a full version of the men's club. And I was really excited initially, too, because Peter Medak, I had only seen one movie that he had made prior to that, and that was The Ruling Class. Oh, everybody had seen that. Yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. And I thought, my God, this guy's a genius. He's so crazy and wild. And, you know, I can't wait to work with Peter Medak. And then, yeah. you know, unfortunately, obviously, he didn't have final say on the cut. Right. Right. Yeah. As is so often the case. Yeah. Beside from movies and, and theater and, and some of the TV stuff you've done over the years that you also do voiceovers, uh, you, you narrate uh, books on tape there, as they say. Yeah. And you did a lot of Stephen King um, and mm -hmm. you also did a lot of James Elroy. I think that's pretty yep. fascinating. And are you still doing that? Yeah. Uh, 2019 was the last uh, one. James Elroy, This Storm was cool. a okay. continuation of LA Confidential. And in that, and I think there's one more in that triad of books. I really, uh, really enjoy that because it's the actor's dream. You know, now that I, yeah. you know, eventually you can see that I eventually got converted to being an actor. Right. <laughs> 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 and and you know, audio books, the, the actor's dream where you get to play all the parts, even the female parts, you know? Right. You do it all. You do the narrator, you do the characters, you do it all. And you're just sitting in a little booth with a microphone with a, engineer in front of you you know and uh, god bless you guys you engineers you guys who run the boards god bless you how long does it take to do a typical audiobook it depends on the length like i did stephen king's 11 63 that's like that's massive yeah that's yeah. huge and that's like i forget the exact number of hours but it's 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 long you know it's like 28 hours long or something to listen wow. to it. and uh it takes a couple weeks wow but that's you know eight hour days yeah because you can't make a mistake and you can't make sounds with your mouth. You can't, you know, swallow, yeah. burp, blah, 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 make noise. And sometimes you want to do a, a thing again, a line again. Mm -hmm. But generally, I like to move through it just like if I were reading it to my girlfriend or my daughter right. or something. Just read it, you know. And it, it moves pretty fast, relatively speaking. It must be fun as an actor to have that kind of language to work with. Oh, my God. Stephen King and James Elroy and yeah. John Grisham, too. I did a John Grisham book. It seems like I was blessed to do all the best of American <laughs> novelists. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, it's a funny story. Uh, here I go again. But uh, I was asked to do uh, the James Elroy book, Bloods, a Rover. 
which is mm-hmm. uh, deals with all the crime and detective work and and political uh, corruption in Southern California at a particular time back in the 60s, 70s period. And uh, just so happened that years later, after doing that, Stephen King had listened to that audiobook and had decided that he really liked me because oh, he had wow. had another reader that usually did all his books who had passed right. away. And I knew nothing about it, you know, but I got a call from, I think it was Simon and & Schuster, and they said, hey, Stephen wants you to read his next book. I said, uh, Stephen who? <laughs> I said, Stephen King, what's the matter with you? What do you mean? Have, didn't you read his review? He, he did this uh, thing in uh, Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, he had, a, he had a running article in Entertainment Weekly. For right, a while. Pop Call of on. King or King of yes. Pop. And he wrote this rave review of my uh, reading of uh, the Bloods of Rover. It said, you know, this uh, audio dynamite and all this. And they said, you don't know about what Stephen King said about you and entertain. I said, no, nobody told me. So anyway, he wants you to read one of his books. And, wow, fantastic. Anyway, that's, that's how that. So once again, you know, I, I, I didn't have an agent or anything. The guy just, God bless him. He looked me up. He found me. I had an uh, entertainment lawyer that I called to set up the deal and all that, but I was very honored and very pleased to be able to do that. And he, and he used me quite a few times. That is fantastic. Cool. Well, this is the hardest part for me in uh, any show is that I have to end the show. It's harder for me. Well, you can come on again. We, I would have you on anytime. <laughs> I'll come on tomorrow. If you like. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> wow. And I'll, I'll definitely book you uh, for another edition soon just because, uh, you know, there's, there's there's more to talk about. And hey, and then we can maybe get into like, you know, I'm kind of interested. In, I know you're a big film a goer too right because that's how you kind of ran across al because you 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 go to the cambria film festival and watch i love film festivals it's one of my favorite things to do i i you know i love now that's why it's such a shame that it's all virtual now but i love yeah. to you know get in there and mingle with all the all the people and talk about film and watch film together i really really miss it well that's what we're going to talk about on the next time that we have craig wasson with us um again this has been probably you know just as a personal note when teal and i thought about doing this kind of program um way back a couple years ago uh and we really it started because we felt like we weren't having conversations anymore. It was all just like yeah. a text message. And, and, yeah. and we used to, you know, years ago, we, we haven't lived anywhere near each other in a long, long time, but we would call and have like big hour long conversations. And it would be always about what movies we saw. And when we started this, I think it was like our fantasy that, Hey, if we did it long enough and got comfortable, maybe <laughs> we could have, you know, guests on that uh, could tell us about, you know, their movie experiences that, you know, actually making movies. And so this is kind of like, you know, know a, a big a personal thrill that you were able yeah. to come on well thank you for letting me join the conversation guys it's a real thrill for me so this is craig wasson uh star of many uh, many films that were important to uh my film going experience and i hope that if you are listening and you weren't as familiar with some of these movies that now you'll kind of seek them out uh, some of them are hard to find and others they're, they're available and you should try to check them out uh, especially for friends i can't that's yeah. to me I would check out four friends and then recommend it to four of your friends. <laughs> you know, of all the movies I was watching, I was telling my wife about them as I was watching them, um, sort of, yeah. you know, in between movies and stuff. And out of all of them, she said, I want to see that four friends movie. That sounds amazing. She's a young adult author, novelist, and I think that transition into adulthood is really interesting to her. So I'm a big fan of that movie. I want to promote it as much as I can. 
Thank you, Teal. I really appreciate you guys so much. Thanks, James. Well, again, thank you for giving us your time and your stories and telling us a little bit about your life. I, I, I mean, I was fascinated, and we definitely have right now. It's it, we're going to have it to be a two part episode because uh, <laughs> uh, I want to break. I don't want to really lose any of the content. So I think what we'll do is I'll concentrate on getting the first uh, half of this interview out, and then we'll do a part two that will come out probably the week later. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right, so everybody, you know, StuffWe'veSeen.com is the place where you can get our episodes. Also, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you find uh, podcasts, hope you find us there, too. Um, and then always uh, feedback at StuffWe'veSeen.com. If you have any suggestions or, uh, you know, you want to be a guest on our show, that's always uh, welcome. But again, my sincerest thanks to Craig Wasson. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Later, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.